Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi, welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. Today we're going to look at the relationship between our child's food, medicine, and health. We're going to look at the agrochemical industry, how it helped to create many of the childhood diseases. And now I believe there are many causes to these diseases, as we discussed last week. I believe fluoridating the water, electromagnetic fields, but also the food we eat, because that's one of the major things that have changed over the last 50 years. So we're going to explore the food that we eat and how that affects us more. Um, Now, one interesting thing before we get started is in 1979, I was involved as a foreign service officer to get DDT to India as part of our aid program. I learned since then that 1973 we banned it in this country. So I'm kind of scratching my head and, you know, wondering, you know, what happened. Anyway, today we have uh, two visitors. We have Michelle Perro, a veteran pediatrician, and we have uh, Vincent Adams, both from UCSF. Michelle is a veteran pediatrician with over 35 years' experience in acute and integrative medicine. She's both directed and worked as an attending physician from New York Metropolitan Hospital to UCSF Benoff Child's Hospital in Oakland. She's currently lecturing and consulting and working with the Gordon Medical Associates, which is an integrative health center in Northern California. Um, Vincent Adams is a professor and the vice chair of medical anthropology at the University of California, San Francisco. She has previously published six books on the social dynamics of health, scientific knowledge, and politics. And she's currently the editor for Met. Medical Anthropology Quarterly. So welcome to our show. Thank you, Susan. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. Yeah, I mean, you've got a book here that I've read. It's quite interesting. What's Making Our Children Sick? How Industrial Food is Causing an Epidemic of Chronic Illness and What Parents and Doctors Can Do About It. So this is coming out soon, if not already out, and it's a very good read, and it'll help mothers and families help, you know, keep our children well by helping them know what to eat and what to avoid. So let's get started. Tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and what motivated you both to write a, write this book. Okay, um, absolutely. My background, as you already mentioned to your listeners, is in pediatric acute care. I'm, I'm a ped emergency physician by training, and um, I did my own urgent care here in Northern, in Northern California using a blend of integrated tools and Western medicine. And about 15 years ago, I began to see this kind of uh, very disturbing pattern of chronically ill children with acute on chronic. And what I mean by that, they would come in, let's say, with an ear infection, right? You see a thousand of those a shift. And, oh, by the way, this is his eighth ear infection, and, he, and the kid would be 10 months old. Or, yeah, he's having a cough, but, oh, he's also on some medications for his chronic asthma. And this pattern has started to emerge, not to mention the neurocognitive issues that have been escalating in terms of autism and ADHD and other um, areas, uh, sensory issues and uh, neurologic concerns. And so at at the same time, I got introduced to some pesticide advocacy work here in Northern California. And through that mom's group, I learned about Jeffrey Smith, Seeds of Deception, his book, and the work of Dr. Arpad Pusi. And to kind of keep this on the shorter side, I'm already kind of yakking on here, but I learned about the effect of genetically modified food on the gut, and I extrapolated that data to look at how this could be very, very, um, like a common denominator of what I was seeing in children, particularly in terms of their gut. So, um, you know, this is Vincent, and uh, as you mentioned, I'm a medical anthropologist, and I've been publishing research on 
social dynamics and health policies and um, health effects of uh, outsized corporate interest in medicine for many years. And um, when I met Michelle, I, you know, I, I was so interested in what she was working on and what she was telling me about her practice that I thought, well, you know, it would be great to help her uh, write a book. And it, her interests overlapped with mine considerably. And I just want to say at the outset that, you know, I was surprised at the outset because, um, you know, like a lot of people, I was initially very skeptical of her position on GM foods. Um, like anyone else going to the Internet, it's easy to see that it's a very controversial field and that um, many will be easily convinced that GM foods are safe and that those who oppose them are just conspiracy theorists. But after I jumped in and tried to really sort out truth from fiction in this field and and trace you know, her patient stories and her theories about what might be going on, I really became convinced that there was something that we needed to talk about, and getting this out in a book would be really helpful. So, um, you know, I decided to jump in and do it and hopefully, you know, produce something that would raise alarm bells for other physicians. Now, you mentioned GM foods, so let's look at GM foods alone. I know that Pustai and Seralini have researched on those alone. A lot of people are focusing on the uh, glyphosate, which is a component of Roundup, the you know, part of the herbicide that, you know, goes along with GM food. So just GM food alone, leaving out the uh, herbicides and insecticides is a problem? Yeah, so Susan, this, is, this has been a challenge for me as a clinician because what I've asked myself perpetually is, is it the genetic modified food? Is it the glyphosate? Is it the formulation of glyphosate? This is what Seralini studied. And or is it that and all the other toxicants you mentioned in your opening that are causing our children's health demise and health challenges? And so what we have to recognize through Kusi's work, before there was this a massive political uh, agenda around the genetic modification process, he showed very clearly and eloquently and simply that the GM process in itself causes health issues. And he focused on rats and it caused um, disturbances of the, of the little you know, intestinal villi, it caused immune dysfunction, kidney and renal function, it caused changes in organ size, it caused all sorts of changes. And he was quickly dismantled within two days. And so you have to ask yourself the secondary question, well, why did that happen? He found changes, so we fire him? Hmm, not, not the kind of response you would see. In science, normally, when you find problems, you either pull the product or you restudy it, right? That's what the FDA does when we try to market a new drug from, um, from a pharmaceutical perspective. But that's not what happened. This, the work in GM alone uh, continued. If you look at just Michael Antonio's work in 2017 in January, he showed that the GM process caused significant changes in livers and oxidative stress, changes in certain chemicals called polyamines. So we now know that it's not just the pesticides and their various formulations, but it's the genetic modification process in itself that causes issue, as well as the BT process, and we can talk about that later, which is a form of GM. So um, that, yes, it causes issues without the associated pesticides. You know, talking to Stephen Drucker, he mentioned a lot of the FDA scientists before we uh, thought GMO is a great thing were saying, wait a minute, and, you know, like Pushtai, they're saying, wait a minute, we need to look at this further. We need more information. Yet these memos, you know, are available to everyone to look at, yet the FDA went along pushing these. That's correct. Yeah, he wrote a wonderful book called Altered Genes, Twisted Truth. And uh, it's a very informative account of the amount of pushback that was given by scientists working in this field and by regulators. Um, and yet, it really, most of the concerns were dismissed. Um, I think, you know, there was a lot of corporate influence in um, creating these as alternatives. And it's also important to remember that when these were developed, uh, they were developed in part to eliminate the use of DDT or to find alternatives to much harsher uh, insecticides and pesticides. And so they were seen as a great alternative. Um, and I think, you know, then, it, you know, one of the things we talk about in the book is the way in which these technologies and the products of the technologies, the actual GM seeds and the ones that uh, were designed to go with the pesticides that are now used with them, were actually sort of pushed and, and found holes in the regulatory system. So the USDA doesn't regulate them. Uh, the EPA doesn't regulate them. 
and the FDA doesn't regulate them because they're considered uh, uh, the equivalent to other foods that are designed by uh, selective cultivation um, and hybridization techniques. And so these have really fallen through the cracks. So whereas genetic modification of organisms occurs across the board in the biomedical community to many good ends, I would say. I mean, most of the biomedical research we use now relies on GM technologies, the the development of mouse strains and, and, and other things. And these are really important, but we're not eating those products. We're not eating the mice that are designed these ways. What we are eating is the food that was designed using these technologies, and these have never actually been tested on humans. What's even more frightening is I talked to one woman uh, who was in the room, it was either a Hungarian minister or a health minister, when Hillary Clinton went in and said, I want to talk to you about GMOs. And he responded, I don't, you can do what you want in your country, but here in our constitution, it's illegal. Then the American ambassador to Hungary followed right in and said the same thing, got the same response. So both Hillary and the American ambassador to Hungary rudely, abruptly got up and left. So this isn't only something going on in the United States. This is something that uh, seems to be worldwide. Yeah, we, it's definitely a worldwide platform because we, you know, we have pushed this product on the world. It, you know, we invented it. It's been distributed. And the influence of big agribusiness on other countries is profound. If you look at what's happening in Africa right now, at like this moment, and since they've incorporated these genetic modification and, and you know the herbicide tolerant seeds, there's been this massive decline in in their product, um, as well as incredible issues with livestock. And we've been showing that across not we um, researchers in in Africa and Canada and the U.S. So um, this is an international problem. And if you look at health patterns around the world, countries that eat the way we do are sad diets. Um, are having similar health issues. And so we can track this internationally, even from the public health perspective. It's now become a global issue, not just an American issue. I would add that, you know, a lot of the reasons people are sick in the U.S. don't, aren't just related to the food. Food is a big part of it. There are a lot of exposures people have to chemicals that are endocrine disrupting, there are a lot of exposures to smoke, a lot of exposures to many things that can cause poor health, and, and there are a lot of dietary issues that are known uh, to cause poor health, but a very uh, few people are actually looking at <clears throat> the way that the quality of the food transformed about two decades ago when they started introducing genetic modified seeds into the basic commodity crops, and uh, that's the piece that we're really focused on in the book. And just to reiterate, we're not just interested in the ways that the technology of genetic modification might have an impact, as well as the proteins that are produced in the genetic modification process, but as well the pesticides that are designed to be used with them. And that, those are the three things that really need more study, and those are the things that we're concerned with disrupting gut health and causing uh, massive chronic disorders. I want to reaffirm that point because, I mean, fluoridation of the water, I mean, that, I mean there's been studies showing uh, bad, you know, decrease in IQ, et cetera, and the water was fluoridated, especially after the Clean Air Act where they can no longer use other means. So, uh, they, you know, through you know, the American Dental Association, they were pushing that we have to put this in our water. Fluoride is healthy on a tooth, but not in the body. It substitutes for iodine and a thyroid and creates all sorts of problems, which studies are beginning to illuminate. Electromagnetic fields, that's another one. I mean, electromagnetic fields with the GMO and glyphosate, I mean, it's a perfect storm. And I think the increase in autism, Stephanie said last week, one out of 36 kids, they're the canaries in the coal mine. It used to be one out of 2,500. So there's a lot of things that are going on in the GMO. But some of the arguments for GMO, they said it's going to increase the crop yield, reduce the need for uh, herbicides and insecticides, and feed the world. None of those have happened, have they? No, actually, au contraire, Susan, au contraire. Um, certainly, um, the seed crop production initially increases 
and then it decreases over time. And then the farmers cannot, you know, reuse these seeds. They have to purchase new seeds every year. In addition, they have to apply increased amounts of herbicides with these um, herbicide-tolerant crops. And now we have this uh, systemic uh, problem with weed resistance, with approximately 75% of weeds are now resistant to uh, Roundup, the Roundup-ready seeds. And the weeds are, so we have this massive weed problem. And, and actually, they've been shown to need more water not less. And one of the um, interesting guys who just recently retired from the USDA, a guy named Rob Kramer, came out and he himself said, these seeds are not, not good. They're slow to germinate. You have to apply massive amounts of um, herbicides as well as fungicides and nutrients to get them to germinate. So the, all these promises that big agribusiness said would happen indeed did not pan out. In addition, you know, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of things that went on with agribusiness and the science and corruption of science, and we go into that in the book, um, and we talk about that as well, not to go off on a side conversation here. But again, what agribusiness said would happen did not happen. And I think that really the person who's written most beautifully and convincingly about this is Michael Pollan, who describes the shift in our agricultural system to mass commodity crops that then they have to find homes for their products. So they create massive numbers of packaged products with over huge amounts of soy, corn, and canola in them. And those are the main GM crops. So it's not only a problem for the way that we now grow our food and produce our food supply, um, which, you know, initially was based on this idea that we needed to do this mass production in order to feed the world, that our, you know, population would outstrip our resources for, for food. Um, and that has been shown to be not true. Local farming does a fine job of producing local supplies of food and healthier food. But it's also now uh, known that, in fact, the financial uh, benefits of using the GM technologies plus the fertilizer plus the pesticides uh, don't necessarily create a fiscal uh, profit for farmers anymore. So it's, it's starting to shift a little bit. And, of course, the weed resistance is accompanied by insect resistance. So what that has meant is that farmers have had to use increasing, uh, increasingly toxic chemicals beyond the, the ones that they initially started with, and particularly the Roundup, in order to get the kind of weed resistance or insect resistance um, that they need. And, of course, keep in mind that the insect resistance problem is a pretty unique one because the way that insect, um, insect uh, genetic modifications that allow in, uh, in, insects to, um, to keep insects from killing plants is that they turn the plant itself into an insecticide. That's the BT technology. And so how you create more, more toxic strains of insect resistance is a real problem for farmers now. <coughs> This is really scary. So nobody benefited from this GM technology at all? Well, no. well, well, well I could say um, agribusiness uh, benefited quite well. Um, yes, they, they continue to benefit. Their, um, their profits are quite high. And I think, I think in 2016, um, one of the main agri companies made $11.3 billion in profit. So it's been still, they're benefiting. Farmers have not benefited. We certainly, uh, from a health perspective, have not benefited. And, you know, there is this revolving door between our government and, um, and big agribusiness. And, you, you know, you'll find that previous employees of certain companies are now sitting in the White House and vice versa. So that doesn't help our cause as well. You know, this, this is, is why this I would... This is a common theme. I mean, there's Taylor going back and forth between Monsanto and the FDA and then there's uh, Tom Wheeler going back and forth between the telecommunication industry and uh, the government. This is a common theme. Susan, you're so right on. You've done your homework. It is a revolving door. So, and it's 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 rather incestuous. And I don't you know how this how this happens. Um, and for those who speak out, you know, and there have been you know EPA scientists in the 80s when this was first getting looked at who spoke out, and they quickly got silenced. So this is another common theme that Vincent and I approach in the book. For, for people who speak out, such as scientists and um, legislators, um, often find themselves either um, quite alone or silenced. 
or perhaps even marginalized and at worst their careers destroyed. And I say the word destroyed because indeed we go into it in the book where people who, who, who are outspoken critics of this whole process um, were, were fired from their jobs. It's, it's, quite, it's quite shocking. Uh, Same thing goes on in the uh, telecommunication industry. People who spoke out are marginalized or lose their jobs. I mean, common themes here. You know, one of the interesting things that I discovered, and I just want to make one note about the impact on farmers, is that initially farmers did benefit from this technology, and many farmers were really doing well with these technologies. And it's just been a matter of the decades of use have created ecological disasters that they're now having to respond to in ways that aren't really helpful for them. It's important to keep that in mind. Um, and, and that the other arguments that the industry uses about creating crops that are beneficial, such as, you know, golden rice with uh, increased amounts of vitamin A, very, it's only 1% of genetic modified foods that have these kind of enhancements. And most of them have not really been shown to be effective or um, desirable in the markets where they've been tested. Um, you have to eat so much to rice that to get a benefit to, that it's, you know, you have to eat so much golden rice to get a benefit that it's impractical. Yeah, and in some places where they've tried it, people won't eat it because of its color and other things. But I was going to add to the, the, the debate, you know, the topic of how much of a revolving door there is with government Keep in mind that there's also a huge revolving door in the area of agro-industries with universities. Um, So many of the uh, departments of agriculture and plant science um, that exist in the U.S. at private and public institutions have large funding from these large chemical companies. And so, you know, on the one hand, it's a great thing. They've got lots of money to spend, and the government doesn't have a lot of money to spend on that research. The downside of it is that we know that science gets biased when the funding uh, funders have a vested interest in certain outcomes. And that's a yes. big problem with this, this We've field. seen that in the sugar industry. There's been a, a lot of uh, sugar industry and vaccines and glyphosate. A lot of that has surfaced lately. But does this mean that if you're doing research in a university in a different department and you come up with something that isn't favorable for GMO, even though you're not getting an agricultural grant, that this will be blocked? Yes. Actually, there are examples of, um, it happened in, in the Monsanto papers when some of their papers were released and Monsanto did their own research. One of their researchers found some adverse results and um, he was, you know, lectured and his stuff didn't come out, but it's all been recently released in the Monsanto papers and all the FOIA Act where they had to release all those emails, right? And and the amount of ghostwriting and um, blocking of their own data that they found has all surfaced. So we know that this is that this is to be true, which is another shocking piece that, you know, we've known this stuff. And so their own researchers have been silenced when they have found adverse effects. Remember when when um, this whole thing started and the looking at genetic modification process in 1983 and was brought to the EPA and was studied, they found evidence of renal tumor, I think the renal tubular adenocarcinomas and kidney cells. And they showed the pathologists and they found evidence of carcinogenesis in the 80s. And what happened was that Monsanto, I believe, gave it to other pathologists to look at. And lo and behold, didn't quite find this, the same findings. So it's been... It's been that, Susan. You know, we have known so many things. You know, the carcinogenetic uh, potential of glyphosate has brought out in 2015, and we've labeled it on top 65 here in California as a two-way carcinogen. But we've known these things, and the truth has been, you know, obfuscated for years. So this stuff has all come out recently, and it's available for public viewing. You can actually get a hold of these things. And, and read read it yourself. It's an all in, it's all in the emails. It's it's all there. It's so sometimes you know, as a physician, I can say I get so frustrated because we've known this stuff for decades. I would like to point out that next week we're going to have John Kamen on the show, and in his book, uh, in uh, he, he discusses that when aspartame came out, the research that the company did was negative, so they fudged the research. Uh, they took cut the tumors out of the animals that ended up with um, 
cancer, and then they presented their data to the FDA, and the government sued this company, and then um, the company hired a well-known government official who's worked in various administrations to get aspartame through, and what he did in the FDA, they formed a committee that voted against it because, no, we don't want our aspartame in our food. It causes cancer, and we're suing these people, but then he ha- they appointed another person to the committee. The vote was tied, so the, uh, the, the re- relevant official in the FDA voted, yes, aspartame is going in our food, even though the research has shown it caused cancer, even though the company was suspected of fudging the results. I think eventually, I think Monsanto might have ended up working with that company, and then maybe Pfizer. I'm not sure. Could be wrong on that. But it was Monsanto. Yeah, you're you're right, Susan. It was Monsanto, and I I think it was um, wasn't it maybe it was Dick Cheney or one of those guys who had a lot of no. His, his initials were uh, last name starts with R. Oh yeah, I think I think the government well some of the government officials did have their hand in that. Um, aspartame, and I think wasn't it uh, a war chemical initially? As most things that wind up our food somehow start as leftovers from war products um, as well. Um, and you know, yes, you're absolutely right. Very, there are a lot of parallel situations. You could even look at lead or or tobacco um, also, and and very similar patterns to glyphosate. Well, tobacco is certainly the model where we didn't look at the precautionary principles is, hey, wait a minute, we don't know, let's be careful, let's charge full ahead, and nobody's paying attention to the precautionary principle. With both EMF and glyphosate, the World Health Organizations, are possible carcinogens, uh, level two, but fluoridating the water is the same thing. When the Clean Air Act came out, um, all of a sudden they had to find another way, something, you know, what to do with fluoride, and they put it in our water. And, and I think the American Dental Association has been paid handsomely to promote this myth. And meanwhile, it's in our food and our toothpaste, and we're hurting our kids. Why is this well, happening? You know, right. This this is the bottom line, you know, and, and Vincent and I really try to focus that, on that issue alone. We, we have a living scientific experiment, at least a solid 20 years, of decline in health. And we know the stats are there. These are CDC statistics that we report in the book. This, you know, this is straight up right from the government. We have this alarming and alarming decline in health. And we can have so many things that we can point our finger at. But the thing that kids do in common is they eat and they eat a lot and they eat a lot for their body weight. So that's why, you know, Vincent and I really just focus on food because that's something that there are alternatives and there are excellent alternatives. It's hard to wrap around as a clinician that advocating for non-chemically industrial modern food would be a bad thing for a child. I mean, can we talk common sense here, Susan? I would welcome it. <laughs> like, you know, so, um, and this is something we can change. We can eat organic food. Um, we, we have, that is something we can do something about. We have an alternative. So let's look at these alternatives. What can mothers do so that their kids become healthy? You know, this, this, this is something that, you know, at the end of each visit, when I, when I work with a family, you know, I mean, if, if parents don't walk away, educators, teachers saying, you know what? The, what we have to do is eat organic. And that's that's pretty clear. And there are ways to do it that are affordable. I understand that organic food is not subsidized by the government like conventional crops, so it is more expensive. I I understand that, but there are ways to work around it to reduce the cost. And we don't have to go into all what we do. The other thing people need to do is drink filtered water, even with a simple filter, and it will take up that fluoride that you have referred to, which I have some concerns about as well. But what we also talk about is balancing the internal environment and the external environment. Is it possible to reduce the chemical load, the allostatic load of what children and, and, and families, grown-ups do, and, and the family dogs are exposed to by decreasing the toxic chemicals we use in the environment, from our carpets to our cleaning products to our toothpaste to taking our shoes off at the door where dust is one of the most toxic things in our homes. So it has to be that the the body reflects what's happening in the external environment, and we have to be mindful of reducing our toxic exposures to both because our kids have become a chemical and a toxic soup. 
Exactly. Yeah. We've had many people on the show, uh, uh, Dr. Prisarno and Dr. Campbell talk about toxins, and many people talk about how important organic food is and how important our gut is, how our gut does not deal well with uh, on with proteins that manage to get through the intestines into the system. So, uh, yeah, toxins are huge. You know, I would, I would add that one of the things we were trying to make a case for in the book is that, you know, we've got lots of people with chronic problems. They're not getting the answers they need from their physicians. And what we need is to really shift our thinking about what medicine can and can't do. So, you know, for many years, it's, been known that um, you know, doctors aren't really trained very much um, in uh, in food. They aren't given much to work with in terms of food. They get nutrition. They get dietary information. Um, and so, one thing that we really advocate for is uh, placing more attention on not just what kids are eating, but the quality of the food that is being eaten and how it's being produced. And another thing that we try to talk about in the book by demonstrating through Michelle's practice is that the way we provide care now needs an overhaul as well. Uh, we call this sort of eco-medicine, um, which is thinking about how soil health it is con- connected to gut health. But there's a whole bigger conversation that has to be had about the kind of practice that she's engaged with as an integrative practitioner in which she spends a good two hours with her patients uh, at the first visit, getting a sense of their history, of what their exposures are, talking with them about what they can and can't afford in terms of getting lab tests to figure out what kind of toxins are in the body, toxicants are in the body, to figure out what kinds of things uh, they're eating, to figure out what they're allergic to and what they're sensitive to in terms of the foods they're eating, blood tests, all kinds of things, you know, ruling out the obvious uh, biomedical problems to figuring out what the system failures are through different kinds of testing. And these all take a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of, all, you know, a lot of this isn't even covered by regular health insurance. So there's a bigger set of issues that has to be addressed if we're really going to change the health of our chronic patients. But the one basic thing that can be done, I think, is uh, to just focus more on food. So are you talking that as healthcare practitioners, we should be looking under the hood, finding a cause of disease rather than waiting for a symptom and putting a Band-Aid on it? Well, Susan, you've gotten to the root cause of with your question, and that is the answer, yes. As a clinicians, we need to be retrained to think more like naturopaths or, as, or functional medicine uh, physicians in, in going for the root cause. This idea of pill-for-ill medicine or Band-Aid medicine doesn't work. We have to work in a system called systems biology where we understand that the body is not just a lung or a kidney, that we're an interrelated complex organ system, and that um, we, in order to understand this work, therapies affect the entire organism. And, and many of our treatments begin with the gut, and we go really into the gut in the book. Wow, we spend a lot of time talking about gut issues, and that's where we as integrative or functional practitioners start. But if you don't look into the root cause, even if you're able to get some health corrections and health improvements, it's unlikely they're going to be sustained for your patient because you haven't dealt with what the trigger is. And it can take some time and effort and money and commitment on the parts of the family but at the end of the day, and the bottom line is if the family, whether you're treating the, the kids, the grandma, or, or the family dog, if families don't make these changes in their diets, and you and I both know as clinicians, it's very hard to get people to change what they eat, um, the um, health improvements are not sustained. And I found that to hold true with patients. Uh, just for the listener, if you we've had many people discuss the gut. We had Dr. Vajani, uh, Eri Vajani, and we've had Tom O'Brien give talks on gut and various issues. Christine Roche also did it. Uh, Dr. Kresser gave a talk on such a health system where we need to look more in the cause, underneath cause. And we had one with James Lavelle who talked about the interaction. We just give more pills, which means we create more symptoms. We cover the, the side effects 
we cover up the symptoms of a disease, but we create side effects, and then we need another pill and another pill. So you can look up those podcasts if you're interested in more information on these various subjects. Oh, and Michael Ash gave a talk on the connection between the gut and our soil, and he's actually inventing a fertilizer, hopefully, that will replenish our soil readily. So for more information, the listener can seek out those sources. Okay, so what kind of illnesses are we seeing with um, that you're seeing in your practice that makes you think is connected with uh, GMO foods or some of these other toxins? Well, let's start with the gut. We, um, you know, there, there are common pediatric complaints, right? Chronic abdominal pain, chronic constipation. Those have been around forever, and they've increased. Uh, reflux, um, where kids are refluxing silently, and those, I think, are pretty much related to uh, changes in our food. The more uh, uh, systemic issues that I'm more concerned about, and as if those aren't enough, are the neurocognitive issues, particularly autism. Uh, as you mentioned before, it's um, now at 1 in 36. I've heard on it's only 1 in 34 kids. It had plateaued for a while, and now those numbers are increasing. And the kids on the spectrum, which is some of the most concerning children, because by definition, it's an epidemic of autism, right? If it's under 1 in 100 people, by definition, that's an epidemic. So we now have an epidemic of autism spectrum disorder, and those kids have some of the most severe gut issues that I have found in my practice. The most satisfying thing about treating them is that once you make the alterations and treatments, they get better, significantly better. So I just want to plug there for, yes, autism is treatable. But in addition to those disorders, we're seeing a massive increase of autoimmunity and 18-month-olds with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, unheard of 20 years ago. And now, not an uncommon finding. Um, asthma is now affecting one in eight children and one in six African-American children, which is massive. And we're now re-looking at asthma as an autoimmune disease. So uh, asthma is so common that people don't even consider it a chronic disease anymore because so many kids have it. And one of the last things that I'll touch upon are food allergies because we're now looking at perhaps 40% of kids now with food allergies. But when I was working previously at the Institute for Health and Healing, well, before I left that position, I was seeing at least 95% of my kids had marked elevated um, elevations of IgG and IgA antibodies to food. And so I was, and, and these are, uh, you have to appreciate, these are kids who have health issues. I don't deal with the well population. I deal with kids who are chronically ill. So this is the sort of, and that's just scratching the surface. There are more, uh, you know, cancers are slightly on the, on the rise as well in children but they take so long to develop. They often don't present to um, in second or third decade in life. And it can go on and on. And so I think globally, the majority of health issues are increased um, and support the data. So that's what we're seeing. That is alarming. And for the listener, if you want more information on the food uh, sensitivities, you look up the podcast by Dr. Smith or Dr. Deutsch. And Catherine Reed, cured her child's autism through a change in the diet. For her child, the particular culprit was glutamate. So for more information, you can look there. But this is certainly alarming. All these diseases are unheard of in children in the past. Well, they weren't all unheard of, but there's definitely been increases in these disorders. And uh, um, in some cases, really escalating rates of problems with for example, irritable bowel syndrome or um, other kinds of IB, uh, intestinal um, bowel diseases. And these are the really alarming things because these really point to uh, a vast uh, you know, problem with the gut. Yeah, the gut is hugely important. So what can we and, do to make sure our kids' guts are healthy? So there are things, you know, people to do, and, you know, we have to be careful here so we don't want to prescribe. And in, in integrative medicine, you, as you know, it's a very individualized practice. One, one shoe does not fit all, and you have to tailor the therapies for the different kids, correct? But there are correct. things that can definitely work that parents can try for themselves and their families. And, you know, for one, you, you know, we, we mentioned the organic. Let's not revisit that. But you sometimes have to remove the most offending foods, which are often gluten and dairy. And I know you have podcasts on that as well. And so if you can uh, temporarily eliminate gluten and dairy from children's diets, that will help. Bringing in probiotics is massive, and that is the wave of future. And we're now using probiotics that are specific 
or what types of issues we're seeing from an, um, a health perspective, like, for example, diabetes. They have an overgrowth of certain organisms. We can tailor our probiotic treatment to what the disorder is. So we bring in probiotics. I also bring in a significant amount of homeopathics. I'm a homeopath, and I have a lot of what I call, um, they're called drainers, a German biological medicine that I use, um, as well as other types of remedies. Um, we can bring in healing herbs. Uh, to heal the leaky gut, everything from slippery elm to marshmallow root. Um, I like a lot of um, various digestive enzymes that I use. I use colostrum um, in healing. And once you can restore gut function and they do get better, you can do nutrient restoration because don't forget that glyphosate is a metal chelator. And what we suspect is happening, and it's been shown to happen in soil, is that it's, it chelates um, key minerals, uh, metals, such as magnesium, manganese, cobalt, um, you know, calcium, zinc, zinc, and copper as well. Yeah, copper, and which can cause systems don't work. For example, you over, I believe, over two hundred reactions in your brain uh, require metalloenzymes using zinc. So, with, and when these kids are deficient, their systems don't work. So, once you heal intestinal permeability, leaky gut, you rebalance the microbiome to help them detox, help them make vitamins. And then you do nutrient restoration with increased uh, vitamins and minerals, kids get better. You have to give the body the tools it needs to do what it knows how to do, which is heal itself and its own innate ability to heal, which the body knows how to do. But it needs the tools to do it, and you have to remove the toxins and the toxicants so you can decrease the load, the allostatic load on the kid. Now, glyphosate's also an antibiotic, and several uh, guests on the show show that antibiotic really disrupts the gut microbiome, which can affect our health. Right. I mean, this is one of the real important missing pieces of the story that we try to tell in the book. You know, when this technology of Roundup uh, to be used with Roundup-ready seeds was developed, um, everyone knew that glyphosate was the active ingredient in Roundup that would kill uh, plants, all plants. It's a broad-spectrum herbicide. And the assumption was that it would be safe for humans, therefore better than things like DDT, because human cells don't have what's called the shikimate pathway. Only plants do. The shikimate pathway is what a plant uses to uh, develop its amino acids. So this glyphosate disrupts that pathway. Well, since we discovered that the humans are anywhere from 10 to 90% microbial, uh, depending on whether they have nucleuses or not, um, we now know that, in fact, those cells in our body do have the shikimate pathway. And so it's clear that glyphosate is probably impacting those cells and uh, de- making, uh, debilitating their function in some way. And that's sort of the piece that we think is really changing the conversation about whether glyphosate is safe or not. And in many ways, the whole GM food debate is spiraling down to this one question of glyphosate, which is quite interesting. Um, But there's a mounting amount of evidence that, in fact, something is going on with glyphosate and it is impacting health by way of the gut. Well, Seralini, it's shown, I think, in Roundup, uh, there's a lot of arsenic. So it might be some of the other components of Roundup, in addition to glyphosate, which will make it even worse. Yes, yeah, and that's a good point. That study was just released two days ago, and now we have found massive amounts of arsenic as well. Um, and whether, you know, whether I, there may be something that the um, agribusiness companies are adding these uh, arsenic, for example, to present something, prevent something called flash for a plant. And so it's not clear whether it's being added or not. But there is this uh, co-chemical contaminant that's now been found. Arsenic is not benign, as you know. It's, it's, it's a toxin for sure. And so this is research is just off the press. So now we can add to our list of bad things <laughs> that happen when we bring in these chemicals is that they have um, other um, elements that are toxic, such as arsenic. And we also know that the inert ingredients in these chemical formulations are not benign either. They're surfactants, and they break down cell membranes. So the, the formulations themselves allow glyphosate to become more toxic and to get into cells. So, you know, there is a lot of confounding toxicity. It's not just the glyphosate. It's the adjuvants that are in there as well, POEA, 
And now we're finding these, you know, these um, uh, other chemicals added, such as arsenic, which is very, very disturbing. And I think Sarah just put that out, I think it was two days ago. And I, I just read that and I thought, oh, my God. Can this story Are you work? saying that this glyphosate can get through the blood-brain barrier? Because Stephanie Seneff definitely believes that. And other people believe it breaks down the kidneys and breaks down a lot of barriers. So are you saying it breaks down various barriers in the body? Oh, yeah. So this idea that we have a barrier covering our brain, I believe, is somewhat outdated. We call it the blood-brain barrier, but that's actually a misnomer. The brain, it allows just about everything to cross through. And so that glyphosate undoubtedly gets into the brain, as well as other chemicals, other toxicants, and foods like gluten and dairy that are incompletely broken down. So the brain is saturated, and what happens is immune cells in the brain get activated as well to kind of protect itself called microglial cells. So now you have this activation of chronic inflammation in the brain. So this, so the brain is not protected. There's no real barrier there. Everything can seem to cross. I agree with Stephanie that chemicals definitely get in the brain. And, and what they actually do there, you know, it's what they do and, you know, all, it's what they're designed to do, what glyphosate is designed to do, what these chemicals are designed to do, and that's what they do. But for sure, we have an activation of brain inflammation, and that's why we say leaky gut, leaky brain. And a lot of you, that's why some of these kids are having so many learning challenges, mood disturbances, irritability, dysomnias, because some of these brain effects. Well, I also, you mentioned in your book, like, glyphosate is everywhere. In Indiana, 90% of the pregnant women have glyphosate in their urine, and they tend to have shorter pregnancies and lower birth rates. I mean, it's everywhere. And in the U.S., we've just raised the amount of glyphosate we can have in our food, which is much higher than in Europe, where they're kind of laughing at us. You know, this is, this is key. And, you know, that research I was talking about, those pregnant women was, I think, believe, in Indiana. And, you know, you know it's 90% of women that found glyphosate in the urine. It's, there, and there are so few studies on humans, by the way. So that is one of the few good studies that we have. The, this effect, what we're looking at, and Brenda Eskenaziad of UC Berkeley, who's been studying uh, organophosphates in the Salinas Valley for, I believe, 19 years now, and she found that those kids and their moms, um, first of all, those kids have some of the highest rates of ADHD reported, and a very difficult type of ADHD as well. Those moms had issues with pregnancy, and those babies had poor neonatal outcomes, low motor tone, not good uh, infancy outcomes, and she's been documenting that for a long time. And what she just came out with a paper, I believe one week ago, which showed that, yes, these chemicals are not good for kids, but where it's worse is during pregnancy and the effect on the fetus. And those effects on the fetus are concerning, not just in, ter- and in particularly in terms of their epigenetics. And we didn't go into that in the book so much, but that's what we know is a major concern is the epigenetic changes causing the fetus, which then present with health issues later. And so you have to kind of eliminate the exposure even before the kid is born. And it's important to remember that even though her study, Eskenazi's study, is not focused on glyphosate, all of these pesticides and insecticides go together. And the more glyphosate develops weed resistance around it, the more they use other organophosphates, which are very toxic. And so it's all of a piece that's connected yeah. together. Yeah. Ekinasi found that children with chronic exposure to insecticides had higher rates of neurodevelopment pro- uh, problems, and particularly in children that do not have the enzymes to metabolize, and they had seven times the normal rate. And then many other researchers show that when... Uh, Certain uh, insecticides contain acetylcholine, which controls muscles and regulation of attention, uh, which can really affect health. And the other stu- you also point out in your books that high birth rate of defects are found in children of migrant farm workers or in their communities, and a methyl bromide fungicide on strawberries is found in the blood of newborns and breast milk. Also, you found that exposure to organochlorides and perithroids, the kids have a, a delayed coordination and cognitive dysfunction. You also pointed out that atrazine, which is banned in the Europe, is used in the U.S. and disrupts uh, endocrine st- stuff. And the story goes on. Well, we have four minutes left, so would you like to make some summarizing points and how to get a hold of you? The floor is yours. Ah, well, no, it would be great if people would read the book. 
and share the book uh, with their families, friends, and medical educators. That would be wonderful. You can get the book at Amazon or through our publisher, Chelsea Green. And we, uh, we hope that it opens a conversation. And, uh, yeah, I can be re- reached at Michelle at gmoscience.org. Uh, I'm also hopeful that people will read this and make personal changes. And on a very positive note, Susan, we were just in Sacramento trying to have legislators, um, ad- you know, adopt a bill that would ban not just glyphosate but other herbicides around parks, children's schools, de- and daycares. And if our legislators can help our parents, um, families, consumers, that would be an enormous change. And that's in the pike. And it looks like legislators will step up. I have confidence that they're going to embrace this at this juncture. Well, we also, we were trying to get legislation through that to have GMO foods labeled, and the federal government preempted this. And they also oh. preempted placement of cell towers in 1996. They passed a law. You can't stop placement of a cell tower for health reasons. And uh, they are very, the large uh, adverse health effects. So, yes, this is, what, this is what we as individuals, as families, as parents have to deal with. We have to fight an upstream battle against this overarching um, deregulation by government of our, of our health, of the EPA. And I'd say, um, you know, as, as parents, we control um, what we buy. And women in particular spend 85% of the household budget. So we can dictate policy by where we put our money, Susan. How about that? It's a start, but a lot more needs to be done. Oh, absolutely. It's a start, but boy, if our legislators will get on board and begin this legislation to, to protect our children, this, this, we can start, this would be a huge feather in our cap, and I think it will set the tone for um, other states to follow suit. I hope so, but what I've seen from our legislature seem to be fighting against our health every step of the way. Yeah, it's an uphill battle, it's for an, sure. It's an uphill battle, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and one of the things that we do talk about in the book, again, I keep hammering on this, is the possibility of getting some of what I call the reluctant constituencies. The, you know, the groups, the AMA, you know, need to spend more time looking at this issue. Um, you know, separate out the GMO issue from biomedical research from the plant and food uh, industry GMO world. You know, there's a lot of research, there's a lot of evidence. Read below the surface, do the homework, and you know, start thinking about looking at new clinical guidelines. On this note, I would like to ask the the audience to do your own research, look at different sources, um, you know, read read, uh, their book, uh, and uh, so you learn, so you can help yourselves, help others, and maybe we can help some of our future generations. So be well. for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.